Today, we're going to be looking in Psalm, 90, uh, sorry, not Psalm 19, a great psalm about creation and revelation of God. So, I don't know about you, but going out for walks in the countryside, just taking in the sights, is one of my favorite things to do. It's just grasping the beauty of what God has created all around us. I love the vastness of God's creation. I uh, love looking at pictures of nighttime skies, seeing all those stars and all the other galaxies about. It's just breathtaking, mind-blowing. And as well as that, when you really look and study in creation, you take a simple thing like a leaf. The veins in a leaf are more complicated than a layout of a modern-day city. It's just mind-blowing when you think about, look at pictures of creation, you think, wow, how big, how vast is God? And also, as well as that, how detailed God is in his creation, how much he looks at the detail of things. And can David, then, if you thought this, hence why is and why he wrote Psalm 19, and we're going to be looking in Psalm 19. So for those who like outlines, verses one to six is David talking about God's general revelation in creation. And then verses 7 to 11, he focuses on God's special revelation. And then finally, in verse 12 to 14, we look at our response to this. So let's read. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. His rising is from one end of the heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. And Lord, as we just unpack the many truths found in uh, Psalm 19, Lord, just pray that our eyes will truly be enlightened to what you have got to say to us this morning, Lord. So, Lord, we pray may our hearts be ready to hear what you have to say through your word, Lord. Just praise you and glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, verse 1, the heavens. It's not talking about the heavens where God's throne is sitting. It's referring to the heavens and the sky, what we see around us. Nature, what we see around us. It just talks about the beauty that we see 
in creation. And all creation speaks about how creative God is and how big and how majestic and how much God is interested in detail. And it kind of makes you feel small when you look at how big some of creation is. I remember going to Grand Canyon once, and boy, that really does make you feel small, seeing the scale of that. They say you can fly seven jumbo jets side by side for it. And you think, really? And when you get there, you think, yeah, and the rest. <laughs> but then with creation, creation also worships God. You read in Psalm 148, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him you in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens and your waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Kind of crazy to think that even creation itself worships God. And considering that even creation worships God and how creation can make you feel either small compared to how vast God is and how creation can make you realize how interested God is in the minute details should actually cause you to worship God yourself. Creation should say, look, where is a God? Find out what he wants and worship him. And in actual fact, Paul picks up on this in Romans 1, 20, where he says, for the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So we are without excuse. And it's true. When you look at creation, you should be able to see his internal power. You should even be able to see the Godhead there in creation. And creation truly leaves man without excuse. How can man look at creation all around him and say, there is no God? As the Bible says in Psalm 14, uh, 14 verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And truly, the fool has said, look at all what's around us. This came about by chance over billions of years. The fool has even said it's come about by aliens. <laughs> but yet, Creation gives us no excuse to deny the power of the living God. Not only that, but creation speaks to everyone across the world in every continent, in every language. It's a universal language. So truly, it doesn't matter where you live. You can live in the remotest part. You're still without excuse because you still look at the world around you and say, someone has made this. Who made it and what do they want from me? Day unto day utter speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And in them he has set a tabernacle full of sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. It rises from one end of heaven to, and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So here, after David's looking at a very bored perspective of creation looking at the language of creation it's now focusing upon the sun calling it like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber like a strong man run its race and uh, it reminds me of my college years 
because where I went to college was on the other side of River Severn in a town called Westminster Supermare, which remember I looked across Wales, I looked west. So every evening, late at night at college, used to look out and boy, did we see some most beautiful sunsets from there looking across Wales. And it really does make you think, wow, the sun really is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, full of joy, full of energy. And whenever you see a sunset or sunrise, that's the image what you kind of get. Or a strong man running uh, run his race. But yet, despite this great revelation, what we see in creation about God, seeing how vast, how big, how majestic, and how awesome God is, trouble is, is the creation revelation, it falls short. The creation revelation, uh, revelation of God is not enough. You see, revelation may tell you about how great God is, but it will never tell you how much God loves you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Creation can tell you where's a God, but creation can't tell you how many thoughts that God has for you. Whereas Psalm 139, verse 17 to 18 says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, there would be no more in number than a sand. And there's a lot of sand in this world. How much more is God's thoughts towards us? I know you can use creation to measure as to how far God's removed our sins from us. As the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed your, our transgressions from us. But yet, creation can't tell you the cost of what it took to remove that sin from us. Whereas Romans 8 verse 32 says, He did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all. And how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He did not spare his own son. That's what the Bible says. But the cost of removing our sins was the loss of God's only begotten son. So we need a different type of revelation than what we get in creation. We don't need a general revelation. We need a specific revelation. We need a personal revelation revelation we need something that god has actually placed his name in and we need something that has actually come from the mouth of god we essentially need the book what we have here the bible that's what we need that's the special revelation because it's only by that special revelation we can truly be saved from our sins just want to pick up on the fact that i said we need something which god has put a name in so if you look verses one to six how many times is the name of god used just once. Just once in those verses about creation. And not only that, but for the ladies who've done the um, Names of God course, you will know this. The name here used is El, E-L, which is just a generic name for God, meaning mighty or strong one. So you'd be a bit surprised to know that not Elohim, which means creative God or creation, uh, God of creation, isn't used here. It's just a general generic name of God. But yet, in verses 7 to 9, six times, six times David uses the word Lord, God's personal name. And look at that word. It's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And you put that together, what do you get? 
Yahweh. Oh no, I've got three spaces here thinking, how can that spell Yahweh? It's completely different letters. I know you're dyslexic, but seriously. <laughs> Whenever you see that capital Al, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the original Hebrew language, it was actually a capital Y, a capital H, capital W, capital H. That was the word used there, and it's used six times here. And it is the personal name which God gave Moses at the burning bush when he said, I am has sent you. So David here switches from the impersonal, generic name for God in verse 1. And then verse 7, he uses God's very special personal name, a name so revered that even the Hebrew translators, whenever they came to this, when we translated from Hebrew to Greek, they would just say the name. They then go and wash, change a pen, change the ink, come back and write that W-H-Y-H. Uh, sorry, Y-H-W-H. Such was the re- how much they revered this name of God. But yet David felt the need to use it six times in these verses. And we're going to see as to why he uses such a personal, intimate name for God. Because after all, David is now focusing on a personal intimate revelation of God and that revelation is only found in the word of God so we're going to try and uh, go through these next three verses and see exactly what David talks to us about God's word so the first one the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul so the law refers to teaching or instruction so God's word can teach us and instruct us in the way that we can please and honour God. Example of that is in uh, Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you should not fulfil the lust or flesh. So instruction there is to walk in the spirit. Philippians 4, 8, another instruction of how to live a life pleasing and honouring to God. It says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there's any virtue, anything praiseworthy, what's the instruction? Meditate on these things. See, God's word can instruct us on how to live that God-honoring life that's pleasing to him. And essentially, is walk in the spirit. And this instruction, as it says there of the Lord, is perfect. God's teaching and instructions are perfect, without blemish, without defect. No error can be found in it. And there should be nothing within God's word that we can reject. And there should be nothing in God's word that we can add. It is complete. Essentially, God's word is sufficient it's sufficient for every need of man. It deals with every issue we could come across in life. It deals with love, marriage, children, divorce, death, money, taxes, government, social life, consciousness, responsibilities. It covers all of life. It is complete for everything we could ever come to in our walk. It is perfect. It is perfect in converting the soul. See, God's teaching instruction 
it uh, converts a soul, a soul, but it can also mean restoring soul. So basically, God restores your soul. And when I say soul, I'm talking about that inner part of you. When this tent and this flesh dies and is buried in the ground and rots away, what's left is my soul. And it's my soul which is going to be la- uh, in with God in heaven for eternity. And it's that which God restores. And it's that which the word of God is powerful to convert, is perfect to convert. Uh, James 1 verse 25 says, But he who looks into the perfect, we've already mentioned that word, law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Essentially, when we look into the perfect law, which we've already seen there in verse 7, law which is perfect, and continues in it, as in he who does the work of the Lord, uh, what is written in this book, and is a doer of this book, this one will be blessed. There's a great blessing to be found in keeping this word of God. And the greatest blessing to be found in this word of God is that restoration, is that salvation, what we can find. When the obvious one is Psalm 23, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So God's word tells us that we are created by God to give him glory. But because of sin that came into the world by Adam, we need to be restored back to God. Because of sin, we are separated from God. So God restored our soul back to himself, by himself, through himself. And we can only truly know this amazing truth through the reading and understanding of God's holy word. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the sinful. So testimony means to bear witness. So the word of God bears witness to its divine author. As I remember John Vickery used to say in this quote a lot, if man wanted to write the Bible, he could not. And even if he could, he wouldn't want to. What that essentially means is that this book is impossible for one man to write. And even if one man could write this book, he wouldn't want to, because it's all about humility. (laughs) Why would man want to write all about that? Because... I say that one man can't read, uh, write this book because this book essentially was written over 4,000 years period in three different languages by about around about 40 different authors. It's impossible for one man to have written this one book. And ultimately, there's one author, and that's God. God is the only true author of the Bible. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, for all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. So if anyone says that Paul's anyone who claims the uh, perfect of, um, authorship of the Bible as being God, King David says it right here when he says the testimony of the Lord are right. So the testimony of the Lord is sure. Both the divine author and the divine word itself is sure, trustworthy. You could put your confidence in both. And when God moved holy men 
to write down this word, what we have before us today. We didn't need to pass his work by a spiritual figure. We didn't need to have a counselor to make sure that what he was writing was right. Because after all, the Bible says about God, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who has, or as his counselor, who has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? And who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of everlasting? You see, God is omniscient. It means all-knowing. And then if he's all-knowing, and as Hebrew says, it's impossible for him to lie, then truly all that God has written in this book is trustworthy. It's sure we can depend upon both God and his holy word. So this sure, trustworthy testimony, it makes wise simple. So, it sure does make wise simple, but yet it does not mean that we should be simple. We are called to seek wisdom, as uh, King Solomon declares in uh, Proverbs. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we are meant to have wisdom. We are meant to have knowledge. But yet, that wisdom, that knowledge, begins with the fear of the Lord. And you know what? With simple word of the Lord, which makes wiser simple, you then need to have 10 degrees to be able to teach it. You just need to, as we read already by Solomon, you just need to have the fear of the Lord. And when, when I say the fear of the Lord, I mean reverence respect and just need that reverence of God and his holy word and trust me the dyslexic guy with a history of learned difficulties can teach it and we understand it but anyone can <laughs> after all it's man who makes the word of God complicated as Chuck Smith always said simply teach the word simply amen Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. So the statutes, another word means charges, precepts, general rule to regulate the behavior or thoughts. So God's word, it's not a suggestion. It's not a book of good ideas. It's not a pick and mix book. It is clear instructions it gives clear rules to the intent to regulate and instruct how to behave in a righteous way before holy god so romans six thirteen says and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present yourselves to god as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to god there is an example of that regulating a way that the Bible helps you to know how to live your life. Another one is in First Corinthians fifteen thirty four. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. So another precept or general rule is to awake to righteousness and do not sin. Another one's found in Ephesians four twenty four, and that you put on the new man has created according to God in truth, righteousness, and holiness. So to live a righteous life before God is to live a life filled by the Spirit, 
And we can only find these pre precepts and this general rule within God's holy word. So these rules and regulations and instructions, they are right. As it says there in verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. I mean, they're not crooked. They're not, they are morally straight. Kind of reminds me of Joshua. When God said to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded. And here it says, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, but whichever way you go may prosper. God's word is straight. God's word does not bend and it's not crooked. And we should walk before him unbent and uncrooked. We should walk before him straight. And it makes me re remember again, 2 Timothy 3, but not verse 16, but verse 17. Because verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And goes on to say it's profitable for doctrine, what we believe. For reproof, to tell us what we're doing wrong. For correction, to tell us how to do it right. For instruction in righteousness, to tell us how to keep on doing what's right. Why? In verse 17, that the man of God may be complete and fully equipped for every good work. So walk straight in the Bible and it shall equip you for every good work that God has for you. So this uncrooked book rejoices the heart. And when you live a life that is right before God, and you live a life that is honor and pleasing to God, your heart can only but rejoice. And King David writes in Psalm 2 verse 11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And again, Psalm 5 verse 11 and 12. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy. Because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. And then with Paul in Romans 5, verse 10, 11. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only that, but also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received a reconciliation. And there is so much to rejoice for. Just read the scriptures and search them for yourself, and you'll see the blessings that are written in it, and your heart can but only rejoice in knowing that you are saved and covered by his blood. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes it's a commandment another word I would say is divine orders what God has ordered us to do and what has God ordered us to do an example of that is Matthew 22 verse 36 to 40 probably the best example of what God's told us to do a man comes up to Jesus and says teacher what is the great commandment in the law and Jesus said to him you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbours yourself. On these two commandments hung all the law and the prophets. So this commandment 
tells us that we need to love. First of all, love God with our all and everything. And secondly, love one another. We are commanded to love God with our all and everything. And these commandments of love, they are pure. They are pure. They're not, they are clear. They're not muddy. They're not cloudy. These commandments are black and white. They're not gray. And they are, as I said already, easy to understand. To love God and to love others. And don't think that these are the only commandment what we have in the Bible. There are 10 of them found in Exodus 20. There's a whole book of them written in Leviticus, if you want me to read it to you now. No? The commandment of the Lord is pure. And it also enlightens your eyes. Ephesians 1 verse 18 says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints was exceeding greatness and power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. As his love is prayer of Paul, but he prays for the Ephesians. But notice what he prays. He prays that the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened. Enlightened to what? That they may know what the hope of the calling of God and what the riches of his glory and exceeding greatness of his power and the working of that mighty power. That's what Paul is praying that the eyes be enlightened to. And that's what the scriptures, when we read the Holy Word, that's what our eyes should be enlightened to as well, is the great power of God and the working of his mighty power and what is the richness of the hope of the call and what we have through Jesus Christ. And in growing in the spirit of God, our eyes will be enlightened in the things of the spirit. And we can only grow in the spirit as we read and study, meditate upon the Holy Scriptures and live them out in our life. So, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, and the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So the fear of the Lord, interesting name for the Bible. Whoever here says they're going to read from the study from the fear today, or they go to fear study. Doesn't sound like great study. But yet, it's called the fear of the Lord because that's what we should have towards it, is that reverence fear. Reverence fear towards God and his holy word. We should hold it in such high regard. As in Psalm 119, verse 105 says, God's word is a lamp unto my feet. We should hold the word of God in such high regard that we have it as a lamp, as a guide to our feet, a direction for how we should and ought to live our lives. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and powerful, sharp of any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is discerned of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
we should have reverence of God's word because it is living and powerful, sharper than any weapon we can find here on earth. It pierces right through the body, right through to the soul of man. And the Israelites, they knew how to reverence God's word. So they were told to put it on ringlets on their wrists and on between their forehead. But yet ultimately, when you read that verse in Deuteronomy, God says that, yes, put it on your wrists and on your head, but let it be in your heart. That's where God really wanted his word to be, is in the heart. God's holy word is to be feared with great reverence. But yet, even though to fear it with great reverence, it's clean. As it says there, the fear of the Lord is clean. It's flawless, free from impurities. And it's the only clean thing in this world that you cannot make dirty. And it's the only clean thing that can make something dirty, truly clean. It can make it white as snow. It can make our hearts white as snow. So Isaiah says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And only the Bible can cleanse you and make you clean. So this clean, fearful and reverence word, it endures forever. In Matthew 5 verse 18, Jesus himself said, But for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one joy or one tilt will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. In other words, not one tick of the T and dot of the I shall pass away from this word until all is fulfilled. God's word shall never diminish and his power shall never diminish. It is truly everlasting. So, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, judgments simply means justice or his divine verdicts. So, it talks about essentially God's divine justice upon the ungodly. How none are righteous according to his judgments. You can read that in Psalm 14. And how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as you see in Romans 3, verse 23. And essentially, in Romans 6, 23, we read that according to his divine judgments, that the wages of sin is death. So God's word tells us that the sin that is in our lives, the wrongdoing that's in our lives, whether it's the lies we tell, the people we hate, the people we lust after, the things we lust after, whether it be the disobedience of our hearts or whether it be the pride of me, that pride of self, whatever sin is committed in our hearts. And truth be told, we're probably all guilty of every single one of those sins. But yet, despite that, the Bible says in Romans 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grateful that Paul didn't stop saying that the wages of sin is death and that he carried on saying that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Because even though God's judgments condemns us to death, saying that your sin, 
you need to be paid for and needs to be uh, accounted for, he counted it for himself and given us that gift of salvation. And these judgments that God has cast upon us, they are true. They are true judgments. And John 18 verse 38 gets me every time when Jesus facing Pilate and Pilate asks Jesus, well, what is truth? If only Pilate opened his eyes and looked before him, the truth would be standing right there in front of him. And the truth was unraveling before his very eyes that whole time. Because the truth is Jesus Christ and him crucified. In God's word, there is no lie, no deceit, just plain truth. And David wraps up this section, these few lines, after saying that God's word, God's judgments is true. He says, they're altogether righteous, altogether righteous. See, this is the only book, the Bible, that can give us that right standing before God. No other book, nothing else in this world can give you a right standing before God apart from the Holy Word. Because this is the only book which teaches about Jesus Christ and him crucified. The fact that Jesus laid down his life for us so that we may become righteousness. Perfection, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous. In other words, what we've been looking at to describe God's word. But yet... These are also words what I'd use to describe Jesus himself. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is sure. Jesus is right. Jesus is pure. Jesus is clean. Jesus is true. So in verse 10 where it says about how God's word is more to be desired than gold, Jesus and God's word should be more desirable to us than gold or any other earthly precious then whether it be your house your car your xbox your money your career your family whatever it is that you can think of and hold so precious to you jesus and god's word should be more precious to you than any of that verse 10 he says it's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb jesus and god's word should be the most sweetest thing to you i'm like for david that was honey but whatever you can think of Whatever thin tingles your taste buds, whatever sets off your sensations or satisfaction or gives you that pleasure in life, whatever it is, Jesus and God's word should be more pleasurable, more satisfactory to you than that. There should be nothing else which could give you that satisfaction than Jesus. More to be desired are they than gold and much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by then your servant is warned, and in keeping them for his great reward. So, there are warnings in the Bible. The Bible clearly warns us about sin and its lusts. You see that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. It warns us that sinners will not get into heaven as well. You read that in James 1, verse 14 to 15. And sin leads to death. And that warning, that life mastered by sin is destined to spend eternity in hell. 
we see there in Revelation 20, verse 15. But yet, despite these warnings, there's great rewards. There are rewards such as crowns to be obtained. You read in James 1, 12 about the crown of life. You read in 2 Timothy 4, 8, the crown of righteousness. And you read in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, the crown of glory. These are all crowns what we can have because we have put our faith and trust and love in Jesus Christ. More waver by then your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Then David goes on to say, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. So, David, if anyone can have a degree in sin, it sure would be David, wouldn't it? You think about the sin he committed, adultery with Bathsheba, murder with Uriah, uh, disobedience towards God when he counted and numbered all the people. And then it's just general uh, lack of dealing with sin in his own family with Absalom. But yet, despite all this sin which David committed in his life, in Acts, we read that he was a man after God's own heart. And yet, with the sin in our lives, we could be men and women after God's own heart. Because ultimately, even despite his sin, David still sought to please and honour God. He still sought to live a life that honoured and pleased God. And we can do that too. We can live by the Spirit, read his word. And if we pray as well, we can have that communion, that perfect communion with God. And we can live lives that are pleasing and honoring to him. But notice the progression of sin there. First of all, it says about secret faults. Then it says about presumptuous sins. And then it says about transgressions. There is a progression to sin. First of all, you may commit sin in ignorance, not realizing that you're committing that sin. And then you may be committing uh, presumptuous sins, purposely sinning, until you get to the transgression and you just outright knowing it's sin, but yet don't care and just committing that sin. And David says, keep me from these things. Let them not have dominion over me. And we do. We need to make sure that these sins in our lives are not having dominion over us. And as I said already, the best way to make sure we're not having dominion over us is to be within the word of God, to be studying, meditating on day and night, and to be filling our mind with it, and being in that perfect communion with the Lord through prayer. And then I love how David ends this up in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let all that I say and think be acceptable in your and honouring to you, Lord. May be found pleasing in your sight. And I love the fact that he says meditation. When the world talks about meditation, we talk about empty your mind. Trouble is your mind's full of junk and rubbish, it's too full to empty. But yet, 
when the Bible says about meditation, it speaks about filling your mind. So may our minds be full of the things of the Lord. So we think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, in which he meditates day and night. And then he should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And if you're meditating upon the word of God day and night, you shall be that tree planted by water. So you have that everlasting of food supply. Because that tree is going to have an everlasting food supply by being by water. And what does a tree need? It needs water. So if we're constantly meditating upon the word of God, we're going to be constantly watered by the word of God. And then, as it says, we shall bring forth fruit in its season. As you read and meditate upon the Lord of God, you shall bear that fruit in its season. And you, as it says in Psalm 1, whose leaf shall not river, wherever he does shall prosper. And we, as we are meditating upon the word of God, we shall not river. So, Psalm 19 talks about the perfect revelation of God. It's not found in creation, no matter how great creation is. The perfect revelation of God is through his holy word. And it's his holy word that we should be meditating on and filling our minds with day and night. And as we do, we'll become acceptable in his sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And that's exactly who he is. He is our strength and he is our blessed redeemer. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your holy word, and may you be men and women who are governed by your holy word, as we depend upon your holy word to govern our lives, to teach us of your laws and your statutes, and to teach us of the right way to live, and to teach us of the blessings that are found in your holy word. May we just be truly blessed and filled with joy, and rejoice in our hearts in knowing you and your truth of your holy word, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.